Family Circus Week 3 here, which means this is the third week of telling the stories of the Weiss Family Circus. This is the story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down, when I found out that Jalen was pregnant with our second born child, Marvel. Anyway, so it's the week of Thanksgiving 2018, and it had always been our custom to head to Wisconsin to spend Thanksgiving with my family. Thanksgiving is kind of an easy holiday uh, to get away as a pastor because it happens in the middle of the week, and for Jalen's work schedule, they always get three days off from the state. So we've got our one-year-old daughter, Noble, and we head down to the El Paso airport, and because of construction on I-10 that never ends, we were running a little bit late, but we park we catch the shuttle to the terminal and we go to check in and that is where all hell broke loose. We get our tickets, we start to check our bags in. They ask to see Noble's birth certificate since, since she was a lap child, good to go. Asked to see my ID, I hand it to them, good to go. And they asked for Jalen's ID and it was nowhere to be found. She starts scrambling through bags to see if it's somewhere other than her wallet, and she just didn't have it. She called Christian, who, we are, uh, was, who was living with us at the time, and sure enough, ID was sitting on our entertainment center. At this point, our plane was boarding in about 45 minutes, and the lady at the counter tells Jalen that there's a process where she could get verified, but she better get started with it right away if she wanted any chance of making that flight. And if she didn't make that flight, she could always catch a next flight and a connecting flight and a connecting flight and a connecting flight. So Jalen tells me to take Noble, deal with all the bags, go through security, get to the gate, and she jets off to the other end of the airport terminals where they handle that process. So I'm now I'm I'm a I'm a capable dad, okay? Like I I can handle just about anything. So I go through security with all our carry-ons and our one-year-old really worried that Jalen's not going to be making this flight. And it's at, the, at that exact moment that I realized that the one bag Jalen still had with her is the diaper bag that also had all the bottles of milk for Noble. And I started, I started panicking, like picturing the absolute worst scenarios that could possibly play out and not knowing how I would or how I could handle them without that bag that Jalen had with her. If Jalen doesn't make this flight, I, I, I am freaking out going through the airport. So they start boarding and we get to, and, and me and Noble get to line up and Jalen is nowhere in sight. I'm scanning the crowd to see if there's any other families with babies and diaper bags and none of them are in sight either. You're like, it's, it's the dreams flight. Like there's no other babies. There's no, no real families. There's no, no one going to be crying, no screaming kids. But I know mine's gonna be at some point and I've got no diaper bags and there's no other families with diaper bags. And right as we're boarding the plane, Jalen comes running up to the gate. She gets on the plane, eventually gets to sit down right next to me. She tells me all the steps that she had to go through in order to get on the plane and it was a lot. And then I looked at her and I asked, are you pregnant? Because there's this thing called baby brain and there's this thing called pregnancy brain. And I had seen baby brain and pregnancy brain during our first pregnancy. And what I saw with someone losing or forgetting their wallet when they, you know, their wallet and their ID when they need to get on a plane made me think, you know what? I think she just might be experiencing some pregnancy brain again. And she goes, well, why would you ask that? And I said, because this is like pregnancy brain on steroids. You forgot your ID and then you took off with the diapers and the milk when I had the baby. 
And she said, hmm, I haven't taken a test yet, but maybe. I said, I don't think we actually need the test, but maybe you should take one when we get to Wisconsin. And seven and a half months later, we had Marvel, all right? Well, this is week three of Family Circus, and here's what we're saying. Every family feels like a circus sometimes, but no one wants their family to feel like a circus all the time. And for family to not feel like a circus all the time, we actually need to pay attention to God's plan for the family. So the first week, we learned that every family needs a ringmaster, and in God's plan for the family, Jesus is the ringmaster. And last week, we looked at the idea of mutual submission, that in the family, we bring everything we have to build a strong and healthy family. We serve, we love, we look for ways to help, and we put each other before ourselves because mutual submission requires that me exists for we. And so we've learned the idea, we've talked about the idea of submission to our Heavenly Father. He's the ringmaster. We've talked about the idea of submission to one another. It's incredibly important. And today, I want to take a little turn, a little shift in direction, and address a dynamic that's at play in every family and in every individual within the family, and at play across generations of family life. And to help us see this, I'm going to read two stories from the Old Testament briefly and draw the connection between the two that helps us understand this dynamic and helps us understand how to maybe change the dynamic or gives us an example of how to change the dynamic. First story comes to us from 1 Samuel chapter 15, a moment early in the unified kingdom or becoming unified kingdom of Israel. In 1 Samuel 15 verse 1, it says this, Samuel said to Saul, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. All that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, not ha- don't have a whole lot of time to go into why that. Like you're like that makes God sound like a pretty big jerk here to like go attack every like women and children, men like like ev- like don't leave anyone alive. Like go kill. Like here's the thing. This is a group of people that they were they were ancient enemies of Israel. It says in there, they had waylaid Israel as they were coming up out of Egypt while they were walking through the wilderness. These people had attacked God's people. And God made a, made a statement in that moment when it happened back, back hundreds of years before this. God made a statement that if these people do not change and do not change their ways and do not change their ways of violence and attacking innocent people, they will eventually be dealt with and wiped off of the face of the earth. And so this is the moment where God's like, hey, They've had hundreds of years. They have not taken advantage of the opportunity to change. This is the time to strike them down. So in verse four, so Saul summoned the men and mustered them at at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Now, I'm going to read that statement again because this is really important. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot that happens in the story and someday we'll come back to the life of Saul and this episode is an absolute do- do- like doozy. But the main thrust 
is that Saul is commanded by God through the prophet Samuel to wipe out this ancient enemy of Israel. And this wasn't some spontaneous decision by God. This had gone for hundreds of years. And so in the moment this is happening, Saul is given incredibly clear commands. And instead, he and his men take the king alive. You may remember his name is Agag. It's important to remember that name. They capture the king alive. And in ancient times, the king represents the people. The king represents what the people stood for. What the king stands for is what the people stand for. In doing so, Saul lets the spirit of the Amalekites live on. The spirit of those who hate Israel lives on because Saul refuses to follow God's command. That's an interesting detail. Saul refuses to obey God's command. Saul refuses to deal completely with the problem that God has opened their eyes to, the problem that God has stated is a problem for a long time. God gives the command that this is the time to deal with the problem, and Saul refuses to deal with the problem in its entirety. He allows the spirit of the Amalekites, the the king, the one who represents everything the Amalekites are ultimately about, he allows him to remain alive. Now, the second story comes to us from the book of Esther. Again, now this is 600, maybe 700 years after the time of King Saul. Here's what we're told in Esther chapter 3. After these events, so this is the events of Esther 1 and 2, where Esther is ultimately, ultimately Esther, a Jewish girl, by the way, from the tribe of Benjamin, from the a descendant of Kish, a descendant of Saul, by the way. This is this is no happenstance. This is no coincidence. After these, after she has made the, king, the queen of Persia, she's married to the king of Persia. After these events, it tells us King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. The Agagite, the descendant of Agag. Five times he is referred to this way as if the author of Esther wanted to hit us over the head with the point that this is a descendant of Agag. King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadath of the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all of the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai, the Jewish uncle from the tribe of Benjamin, like Saul, by the way, of of Queen Esther, the, the uncle of Queen Esther, also from the tribe of Benjamin, also a descendant of Kish, the father of Saul, But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's commands? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So Mordecai, from the tribe, from, from, from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of King Saul. He has this person that is elevated and everyone is commanded to bow, but Mordecai goes, I refuse to bow to anyone but the Lord. So I, so I'm, I'm going to be civil. I'm going to be respectful, but I cannot bow because you are not my Lord. It says this in verse five, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Verse 6, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, 
There is a certain people of dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all of our of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, now by the way, the official policy of per, of the Persian Empire was to tolerate all religions. Haman says we need a reversal of the policy. It is not in the king's interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadath, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces within the, with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Here's the story of that, that unfolds in Esther chapter 3. Haman, the Agagite, the descendant of Agag, whether physically descended or metaphorically the descendant in that he hates the Jews, the people of Israel. This man is confronted by a Jewish man from the same tribe of Israel as a once King Saul. And he comes unhinged to the point of getting the king of Persia in on a plan to wipe out the Jewish people who exist and live anywhere within the Persian empire. And the rest, entire rest of the book of Esther is this frantic mad dash for Mordecai and his cousin, Queen Esther, to find a way to stop the plan of Haman and stop the orders that carry the king's signature on them so that the Jewish people across the world are not and will not be wiped out. And the connection that happens between these two stories should be pretty obvious right now, should be pretty pretty open, pretty, pretty big deal that there's this guy, Agag, and there's a descendant of Agag. And there's this guy, Saul, who refused to deal with, the, deal with what God had told him to deal with. And now we have his descendants, Mordecai and Esther, dealing with a problem that Saul refused to deal with in his generation. And hundreds of years later, they are dealing with the same issue that's at, that's, that's at stake, that's confronting the, the, the people of Israel, that's endangering the people of Israel, because back 600 years ago, their descendant Saul refused to deal with it. And here's the thing, and this is, this is, the, this is, the, this is the big, huge principle for today, and this is where we're going to just camp out and talk for the next, few, the next 15 to 20 minutes. What happens in one generation always gets passed on to the next generation. What happens in one generation always gets passed on to the next generation. And in the context of family, we need to be incredibly aware and incredibly vigilant about that. The problems of one generation that go unaddressed get passed on and become the problems of the next generation. The blessings because of the fight and the struggle and the victory that we experience and the freedom that we find in one generation gets passed on as a blessing to the next generation. And in this story, what Saul didn't deal with in his time became the problem for his descendants generations and centuries down the line. And it very nearly became the thing that took the nation of Israel and the people of Israel out 
for good. And so today I want to talk about the problems that one generation refuses to deal with. And I want to talk about the problems that that one generation solves and how those play out for generation after generation after generation to come. See, here's the first thing. Problems not addressed in our generation always become problems for the next generation. See, there's two real bad guys connected by these two stories. There's Haman, who is still consumed by, still driven by the same hatred of this group of people 600 years later that was, that was driving his descendant Agag, that, that, that was driving the Amalekites. This same spirit has lived on. He is still 500 and 600 years later consumed by and driven by and controlled by this absolute hatred of this group of people. But the other bad guy in this story is Saul. Saul is the ultimate villain of this story. He refuses to obey God, refuses to fully address the problem of the Amalekites. This is actually the moment that God decides that he needs to move on from Saul as king of Israel and removed his hand of blessing and anointing from Saul. And I think at least part of the reason that God was so frustrated about Saul in this moment is that God knows that leaders set the pace, leaders set the tone for their people. And when leaders refuse to address significant issues, leaders unfortunately determine the problems that their people will deal with for years to come. And by Saul's failure to obey God fully here, Saul allowed a serious problem to live on and linger that would impact his people hundreds of years later. Now, in the context of families today, I hope that this is pretty apparent, but in case it's not apparent, we're going to flesh out what this looks like. In the context of families today, like I'm not one to talk about inevitabilities because with God, anything is possible. And I don't like the language of general, generational curses or anything like that. But we have seen enough of life and family play out to know that this still happens today, right? Like Because what you know and I know is for better or worse, whether or not we admit it, we are walking and talking replicas of our parents who are walking, talking replicas of their parents before them, and our children will be walking, talking miniatures of us as they grow. And we had our, our special guest, Pastor Dave Crispin, who was present for our family night last week, who was, was, he was with us, and he said this incredible line. He said, your children will become who you are. They won't become what you teach them. I was like, man, your children will become who you are. They won't become what you teach them. So what you and I know is each of us have some stuff that has existed in our family that we saw in our grandparents and in our parents that you and I know wasn't healthy and it caused problems for them. It's those things that you say and those things you whisper about after the kids go to bed. You know, grandpa wasn't always, he always dealt with and then mom did too. And you know, dad could never seem to get past. And you know, mom was always impulsive with their spending and it always kept our family in a financial bondage. You know, dad always dealt with a crippling restlessness where he could never settle in and hold down a steady job. And he wanted to always be on the move. So we moved a lot. We could never settle into a school. You know, mom always dealt with that anxiety and that and thought prayer would fix everything, but it never seemed to really go away. You know, dad always had that habit of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person. His mouth always got him in trouble. You know, mom never trusted men. She married one, but she never trusted him. You know, dad could never quite overcome his dependence on the bottle. You know, you know, you know, this thing, you know, this thing. And anybody, like, do you know the types of things that I'm talking about? Like if I haven't hit one from your specific family yet, I guarantee I could keep going and I would hit yours because this stuff is the stuff that we all deal with on some level. And because of their unwillingness or inability to deal with their issues, one of two things happened. Their problem affected you and either it either affected you and created new problems or they passed their problems on to you and their problems became your problems. 
Like either their problem affected you and created new problems, like, like you compensated for it. And because you compensated for it, you have walked with a limp throughout your entire life where you're trying to compensate for whatever was their issue. And now you've got this issue where you've dealt with a, walked with a limp and you're not walking normal and you're walking with a limp because you've carried their issues or you overcompensated for their issues and you went too far in the opposite direction. They were kind of religiously heavy handed and you decided that you were going to have nothing to do with any religion. And so you're like, you know, religion had a place at one point in my life, but I like uh, you, you rebelled and overcompensated for what they were, you know, they were religiously strict. They were religiously heavy handed and you overcompensated. They, they never ate out. And so you do all the time. They, they were financially, they never wanted to spend anything. And so you, you've got some freedom now and you spend and you spend and you spend and you're overcompensating and you're creating all kinds of new problems because either their because their problem affected you and it created new problems or their problems got passed on to you and their fear got passed on to you and their worry got passed on to you and their restlessness got passed on to you and the depression got passed on to you and their inability to stand still and their dependence on the bottle and their refusal to, to engage in a healthy way in, in, within the, with, with your children and the, and, and the way that you saw marriage, it got passed on to you and like you just kind of look at it and you go, I don't know where this, where this came from, but let's be honest, you know where it came from. Because their problems became your problems when they passed their problems on to you because they refused to address your problems. There's this incredible quote from Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He said, Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. That, that again, I don't like the language of general, generational curses, but we absolutely have to acknowledge here that what doesn't get addressed, the problems that don't get addressed from one generation, they don't just magically go away. They tend to get passed on to the next generation or form new problems for the next generation. And here's the thing I wanna drive at today. If you're dealing with, with, with the, the effects of, of, of some generational stuff that was passed down to you, if you're dealing with some stuff where you overcompensated for some things that you were tried to avoid, you know, like, I don't want to become that, so you became something else. If you're dealing with that, you are not the bad guy for facing something that started somewhere else. You are not the bad guy or the villain in, the, in the, your story of your family for dealing with issues that were handed to you by mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. But here's the thing that you do need to understand. You become the bad guy if you hand it to the next generation. You become the bad guy if you hand it to the next generation. Don't you know that to be true? That you're not, you're not the bad guy because you're experiencing something, because you have an issue that was handed to you and it didn't start with you, but you, it, you got handed it to you and now you're dealing with it. Now you live with it. Now you feel it and all that. Like, you're not the bad guy for any of that, but you become the bad guy if you hand it to the next generation. Meaning every single one of us has to do a deep look in the mirror to examine ourselves and make sure that the issues that we don't want to see go forward into the next generation that we actually address in the here and the now in us. And so two thoughts that I want to have that I want to make sure I just like hit really hard here. Don't make a today problem a tomorrow problem because of your unwillingness to deal with it. 
I mean, again, there are things that you absolutely do not want to pass on or do not want to continue in your family. They existed in the family that you came from. You do not want it to exist in your family moving forward. Like you are now aware of it. You, uh, you become aware of it. You've seen it popping up in yourself. You've seen it popping up in the way that you talk to people. You've seen it coming out in the way that you manage your kids. You've seen it coming out in the way that you, you interact with your spouse. And you have this thing that you just go, you know, I, from this day forward, I don't want that to be true in our family. I don't want that to be true for my kids. I don't want that to be true in my kids. I certainly don't want it to be true in my grandkids. And because it's a thing that's in me, I know that if I don't deal with it, and if I don't address it, it's going to go forward in our family and it's going to go forward into the next generation. And so if I don't deal with it today, it becomes tomorrow's problem. So don't make a today problem a tomorrow problem because of your unwillingness to deal with it. Here's some things that you absolutely don't want to pass on to the next generation. You don't want to pass on addiction. I mean, whether that's a substance, whether that's alcohol, whether that's a phone issue where you're just addicted to your phone, whether you have a porn problem, you do not want to pass on addiction to the next generation and you do not want it to affect your family from one more moment. Deal with it today so that it does not become a tomorrow problem. Maybe there's some unhealthy relationship dynamics where there's maybe a, you know, like a dynamic of manipulation where we manipulate each other with fear and you were like, you know, someone manipulated you and you learned how to manipulate and you became a manipulator. And you're like, I never wanted to become that because I know what it's like to be, to, to be on the other side of their manipulation. And unfortunately, because you know what it's like, you knew how to do it. And you become a manipulator and you do not want to pass that on one moment more, which means you need to address it in yourself. Maybe it's a, a pattern of abuse. Maybe it's a pattern of racism where, where there's certain people that just aren't trusted and aren't liked and aren't treated well simply because of the color of their skin or where they came from. And if that's in you, that's an unhealthy relationship dynamic and we need to move on from it. We need to not just move on, we need to address it. We need to figure out where it came from and how to move past it. Maybe it's a mental health thing where there's some anxiety, there's a history of depression, there's crippling restlessness. There's all kinds of different things that affect the family that you live in right now. And if you go, you know, I do not want this to affect the family that I live in right now. And I certainly don't want it to be a, a part of the next generation. I don't want my kids to experience this. I don't want, like, so, so what that means is we got to figure it out. We got to do the hard work. We got we to we do the difficult work to make sure that, that we, to the best of our abilities, address whatever it is that we need to address. And here's the second thought that I want to make sure we understand here. Don't make a you problem a them problem because of your unwillingness to deal with the problem. Here's what I mean by that. In marriage, in family life, your proximity to your spouse and to your kids will make you think some of your issues are their fault because they never came because those issues never came out until you were married to them until you were parenting them but here's what i need to make sure that you understand you carried that issue into marriage you carried that issue into parenting it came out because of their proximity to you guessed it you. And here's what so often happens. I blame them. I blame them. I blame them because this never came out of me until I got close to them. But here's what you need to know. Them is not the problem. That would have come out of you when you got close to anyone because it was in you. Don't make a you problem a them problem because of your unwillingness to deal with the problem. See, sometimes when we do this, we blow up a relationship with a great person because we think, well, they're the problem when really 
It's what's coming from us. So for some of us, we've got some hard work to do. We've got some deep work to do where we not only identify the problem, because chances are, as I'm talking about this today, some of you, you're wanting to turn this off right now, but you, you're, you're already aware, like you're, you're going, oh my gosh, this, like, he's not talking about this yet, but this is what it looks like for me. This is what I, like, where, where we know what the issue is, but you've got to, you've got to get out a journal or get out your phone and take it and, and write this question down in a notes app. What's present in me that needs to end with me? What is present in me that needs to end with me? What's present in me that needs to die with me when I die and should never be passed to my children? What's present in me that I need to kill in myself right now so that it doesn't get passed to my children? What is present in me in my attitude, in my thought life, in the way that I talk about people, in the way that I talk to people, in the way that I treat my children, in the way that I treat my spouse, in the, way that I, in the way that I think about money, in the way that I think about finances, in the way that I think about career, in the way that I make us move. Like what is present in me that needs to end with me so it doesn't go forward and affect them? See, that's the downside of this story. That's the fact that there are problems that exist as problems and they will affect next generation and it will affect your family until you deal with them, until someone steps up and says, it ends here, it ends now, it ends with me. But there is a good side of this. The, 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 the flip side of this, in, in this story, we see the negative side of this. But because of, because of some people in this story, we, we see that there is an option, there is another option. There, there are actual, there are, because there are bad guys in this story, but there are also heroes in these stories. And the good guys and the heroes remind us that blessings, because a problem was dealt with in the current generation, become blessings for the next generation. Again, there's, there's three heroes in these two stories. There's Samuel, there's Mordecai, and there's Esther. Samuel is the hero because Saul it has this moment where he refuses to obey the commands of God. and He refuses to fully address and fully deal with the commands of God. And so Saul, God removed his hand and his blessing from you. And if you're Samuel in this moment, you're the guy going like, you're feeling vindicated. Like, man, this is not my fight. This is like, I, you know, God spoke through me to Saul, gave Saul the responsibility. I told the whole nation that they shouldn't even have a king. I tried to avoid this whole mess by not ever appointing a king. I didn't even want to anoint a king. I only anointed a king because God tapped me on the shoulder and said, it's your job to go do it so that the people recognize that, the, that God has chosen a king. But I know this isn't the way that we're supposed to go. And so Samuel had this moment like, this is not my problem, but I'll address it anyway. Mordecai and Esther, they're going like, hey, we inherited this fight. We don't even know why this guy hates us so much. I mean, we've got that story about about Saul and Agai. Like, we didn't even know if that was a great early true story. If it was like a, just like a, like a folk tale. Like, we didn't even know if that was true. We don't know why this guy hates us. We don't know why this guy wants to wipe out our whole people. But we inherited this fight. We, like, this isn't our fight, but we inherited it. But since we inherited it, we're going to win the battle even though we didn't start it. And here's the thing that we need to understand if we're going to be the heroes of our story, the heroes of our families, the heroes who make the right call in the face of adversity, in the face of very real problems, it may be their fault, but it's your responsibility. It may be their fault, but it's your responsibility. It may have been passed to you, but now it's in your hands to do something. That little bit of racism that's, that comes alive in you where you laugh at jokes about, that are at the expense of a certain shade of skin color, it, it was passed to you. 
It didn't start with you. It was passed to you by someone who didn't deal with it. But you know what? It may be their fault that they pass it to you, but now it's your responsibility to do something about it. That, that, that mental health stuff that was passed to you where you feel like this is a generational thing and mama dealt with this and daddy and her daddy before that and all these people before, like, look, it may not be your fault that you're dealing with it. It may have been hand, handed to you. But now that it's in your hands, it's up to you to do something with it. That restlessness that you saw modeled by parent and grandparent and grand, like, and everyone was always on the move and no one could sit still and no one could really kind of get stable and find a way to stay, to, to, to find some stability and prosperity in life. And so you picked up some restlessness. Look, it's not your fault. It's what got modeled for you. It's what got handed to you. But now that it's in your hands, it's your responsibility to do something about what is in your hands. And I got two thoughts about this. That they may, may be their fault, but it's your responsibility. The first one is simply this, is that when you win, so does everyone you love. Like when you decide to, to improve, when you decide to move forward, when you decide to address the issue, they grow up healthier and they know it's possible to experience victory. When you win, so does everyone you love. So does your spouse. So do your children. So do your children's children. That when you win, so does everyone you love. And they know it's possible to experience victory. So when they face challenges, they know, hey, our family, we overcome stuff like this. So when we face adversity, we face our own issues, we know it's possible to change because we saw it from someone else in our family. When you win, so does everyone you love. And the second thought is simply this. You may not be able to change everything. You may not be able to find yourself like, fully like, hey, we, we, we inherited this and now it's no longer a problem. But here's what I know you can do. You can be 1% better. You can be 1% better. And here's what you need to understand. Some growth is still growth. Slow motion is still motion. Then you're like, I, like we didn't get all the way there. We didn't fully under, uh, address everything. We didn't fully deal with all the issues. Like we made some, like we got like 50% of the way. We got like 20. I mean, I don't even feel like we got, we got 15% of the way. We only got 1% of the way. Some growth is still growth and slow motion is still motion. And so whatever has been put into your hands, we make the decision that it's may, it may not be our fault, but it's our responsibility. And when I decide to win, so does everyone else that I love and care for. And if I'll decide to be 1% better, maybe I can be 1% better this month and I can be 1% better the next month. And by the end of my life, I may only be 15% better, but that's 15% better for me and for everyone that I care for. <coughs> and when I do that, the blessings that come from addressing the problems of one generation in one generation become a blessing that the next generation gets to live in and live from. Now, let me ask you a question. Don't you kind of want to be the person that generations from now, your grandchild of yours, here's the tale. You know, our family always kind of had issues with drinking too much. But your grandpa, your granddad, he broke that cycle. Or your grandchild is dealing with their own anxiety about something going on at school, and your kid or your kid, their parent whispers, you know, you should talk to your grandma about that. She faced that and figured out how to overcome anxiety. Like that's what happens when you choose to be Samuel, when you choose to be Esther, when you choose to be Mordecai and go, you know what? Like this was handed to me. It's, it's not my fault, but you know what? It's my responsibility for here now today. 
And it's my responsibility to make sure that it doesn't go a step further in the generation to come. That's the power of when you work with God to address the things that God brings to our attention, the things that God has brought to our to our peripheral, like that, that we just go like, you know, I know this is an issue, and I know God has in the through the Holy Spirit has brought it to my attention and won't let me shake it. It's something that I know has to be dealt with. And so I'm gonna make the decision to do the hard work, to do the deep work, to make sure that what I that what's what's in me ends with me and it doesn't get passed on to a generation that came from me. And it doesn't get passed into a family that exists with me in it. So I'm going to deal with whatever I need to deal with today by the strength of God, through the empowering of the Spirit of God. We are going to face our issues so that the problems of, the, of, the, of previous generations don't get passed down to the next generation, become problems of that generation. And we're also going to make sure that we address the problems of the past generation so that the next generation can live in the blessings that come out of dealing with what we need to deal with today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love for us, your grace for us. Thank you for the everything that you are to us. Thank you that in you and because of you, we know that freedom is possible, that victory is possible, that overcoming temptation is possible, that peace is possible. And we can know all of that because of your spirit at work in us. And we can know that, and today I thank you for these stories that it has the potential to be depressing, but God, the principle we derive out of it, it has the potential to be life-giving and freedom-bringing. And so God, I pray today that we would lean into that, that we lean into the, the opportunity for freedom and for peace and forgiveness and joy and life that only comes from you. And it only comes when we lean into what you have for us and how you want us to live. So God, help us to do the deep work, the difficult work, the hard work of rooting out anything in us that needs to end with us so that we don't pass it on one more moment to the next generation and we don't pass it on one more moment in, within the life of our family. God, give us eyes to see, give us wisdom to know, give us courage to act and give us the resilience and the perseverance to keep acting until all of this is dealt with until all of it is addressed as you want it to be addressed. So God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for the courage that you're going to give us and your spirit that's going to empower us. And we pray that you would move us forward to be the families that you want us and plan us and purpose us to be. We love you, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.